Thank you for listening to Lone Star Community Radio. This program was broadcasted and recorded live from the LSCR studios in downtown Conroe, Texas. Lone Star Community Radio is supported by listeners like you. Donate and sponsor today. For more information on getting involved with Lone Star Community Radio, contact us at lscrstudios at gmail.com or visit us online at www.irlonestar.com. Hi, welcome to the Legal Connection Show. I'm Tony Collins, an attorney in uh, licensed attorney in Texas. Uh, the Legal Connection Show airs on Tuesdays at noon to one every week. And you can get us on FM 104.5 and FM 106.1. If you miss part of the broadcast or you want to listen to it again, um, you can go to IRLoneStar.com and all of the episodes that we have um, uh, videoed and recorded will be on the site under the Legal Connection Show. And you can also go to our Facebook, The Legal Connection Show, and get our uh, um, the the, replay, the recorded uh, replays. Or you can go to our YouTube, the Legal Connection Show. Um, I believe it's .com. I'm not really sure, but but you can get you can re-listen to any of our broadcast um, if you miss them or you want to hear them again. And so uh, today our show is going to be the final um, uh, uh, in a series of uh, three parts for Roe v. Wade. And our first part, if you want to go back and listen to it, talked about the actual um, original. Roe versus Wade opinion and and what it actually was about and what it said. I mean, we hear about it, but most of us have never read it or knew anything about it other than it had to do with um, pro-choice and pro-life rights, and it was a landmark decision back in the early 70s, and I believe it was 1973 when it came through. And so um, what's been in the news lately is um, that uh, it may be overturned because there was a uh, a, a new case in Mississippi to challenge the constitutionality of of the abortion laws in the various states, and this one was in Mississippi. Um, so the um, I, 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 we're actually going to talk about it today, but the new case is Thomas E. Dobbs, the state health officer of Mississippi Department of Health, um, as petitioners versus the Jackson Women's Health Organization, and the Supreme Court. Um, granted certiorari on that, um, and it, they heard oral arguments, and it actually, uh, although it hasn't been, you know, uh, the Supreme Court hasn't come out to the public with their decision, it was leaked, just like the first one was about 50 years ago, Roe v. Wade. And so um, I have a copy of that draft leaked opinion that was written by Justice Alito, and we're going to go over the final part of that, um, so you you can understand what the all of the um, I guess uh, uh, I don't want to say confusion, but what all the interest is in this particular case. And what I also did last week, and I'm going to continue on with this week, is to talk about the actual people involved in the cases. Um, while I don't have a lot of information about uh, Thomas E. Dobbs, we're going to find out about that when we go over part of the case. Um, I do have some information on the actual players back in 1970, um, Jane Roe versus Wade. And what we learned last week was that Jane Roe was a, uh, a, a pseudonym uh, of, for a real person's name. Um, her name was not Jane Doe, which is what they call, you know, bodies that they find. Uh, Jane Roe was what they used, and her name was actually Norma McCorvey. Um, 
she was actually alive until 2017, and she lived in the Katy area. In fact, uh, Roe v. Wade was a Texas case that was brought in the federal district court, and they won in district court, lost in the Fifth Circuit, and then won um, at the uh, Supreme United States Supreme Court level uh, when they they used legal gymnastics to get to the result which what they wanted, which was to um, find that the state of Texas laws were unconstitutional with regard to um, whether or not they could control a woman's right to an abortion. Uh, the Texas law at the time um, was very similar to many laws that we had in almost in a majority of the states. Um, and it should be a state issue. That wasn't what was brought up in Roe v. Wade. In fact, they argued the constitutionality of um, whether or not the Texas law was um, was, was unconstitutional uh, under many different amendments in every, a lot of different parts of the Constitution, but not the Tenth Amendment. The very amendment, which I've always thought was uh, was it was an issue in many different areas uh, in in uh, in our law. Uh, the Tenth Amendment basically says that any laws that aren't uh, specifically expressed to be addressed in federal court are a are, should be belong to the state to decide, and that's gun control. Here it would be whether someone's pro right. Uh, I'm sorry, pro life or pro choice, and and all the different areas of law that aren't expressly given to the federal government are reserved to the states. That's what the Tenth Amendment is. Um, because there's no, the word privacy is not even in the Constitution, and because there's no, there is expressly no law that allows the federal government to make rules under, uh, for whether or not a, uh, a woman has the right to have an abortion or not, medical issues, um, that would be reserved to the states. And so that's pretty much the direction that uh, we're going to see that this, uh, the Dobbs versus uh, Jackson Women's Health, let me see what the name of it is, Jackson's, Jackson Women's Health Organization, uh, that's pretty much the way I believe that uh, Justice Alito has reasoned that Roe was just wrong in the way it was decided. And do you, I guess uh, for our listeners and, and viewers to know a little bit more about it, the Supreme Court isn't, or they're not supposed to, be trying to make law. They're trying to determine whether or not um, the, the law is done by the legislature uh, or by the states, but are, are they're deciding whether or not the law was followed. But they're not supposed to be making law, but what they do is they interpret, uh, they de decide whether or not it passes the, the burden uh, by the, the uh, I guess, the courts and the states and legislature to, um, and I forgot what the name of it was, and I made the highest rating constitutional law, I should know this stuff, but um, it was 20 years ago. Um, the uh, whether or not it's it it meets the uh, I guess the controls of the Constitution and so anyway Justice Alito uh, did wrote a very very good opinion in my my opinion that uh, followed the guidelines of the Constitution and basically said the state should get to decide I think that's what we're going to see when we read it into in it in more detail in a little bit but um, anyway so Norma McCorvey lived in the Katy area she died in 2017 she never met um, the children that she gave up for adoption and uh, just a, a slight backstory on that Norma McCorvey 
was a Texas woman who uh, wanted an abortion. Uh, she met with an attorney, uh, Larry McCluskey in uh, the Dallas area. They were looking for a woman, um, some young um, Harvard, I think they were Harvard graduate women, were looking for somebody that could be their uh, person to uh, have standing to bring a case to the Supreme Court to uh, to, uh, to argue that this law was unconstitutional, but you can't do that unless you have standing. Uh, Norma McCorby was pregnant and wanted an abortion, but she uh, allegedly could not afford to get an abortion. Uh, she couldn't leave the state to go to a cheaper state because they were offered in other states. And she was past the 15-week mark, and in Texas, that was the law was that you can't get an abortion after 15 weeks. And so um, she was hooked up with these two young attorneys who were close to her age. Um, uh, Sarah uh, Weddington, I think, was one of them, and the other was, I think her last name was Collins. But um, let me see what their names were. Uh, well, anyway, she could have gone to Oklahoma for it, but they, they, and she didn't have any money. She was really poor. She was born on the wrong side of the track. She got in trouble a lot with the law, and she wanted an abortion. She got hooked up with these two attorneys that basically dragged their feet and had no intention of helping her get an abortion, although Sarah Weddington had actually gone to Mexico and got an abortion earlier. She was just, she couldn't afford it. So their argument was, you shouldn't take this right away from somebody who should have the the right to control her body, you know, the whole uh, pro-choice uh, movement. And so they brought it to uh, court. Uh, during that period, though, you know, these cases last a long time, she had the baby. Uh, she couldn't get an abortion. They didn't want her to have an abortion. They wanted her to be the figurehead for it. And so they, uh, Larry McCluskey actually uh, arranged to have her adopt the baby that she had adopted. She had had two babies previous to this. Her mother adopted one of them. She was against her will, but they, she knew her. Then she had another one that was adopted. She knew those two children, but she never met the third child, the one that was the baby that gave her standing to be the Jane Roe and Roe versus Wade. And so um, uh, what I looked up was this woman was born in 1970. Uh, what happened to her? And I found an article on her. And so we're going to talk about the baby who is now a 52-year-old woman. Uh, she might be 51. She might be 52. Um, that uh, where she lives and what happened to her and, and what have you. So Norma Clusty had this baby in Texas and uh, gave the baby up for adoption. And here is what we know about that woman. She's called the Roe baby. Her name is Shelly Lynn Thornton. And um, she lives in Tucson. And um, Norma, so here's, I'm just going to read this article. The article is written by, an, uh, I guess, not Politico, but another uh, news organization called Politics. So, uh, and it was actually written last year. This woman kept her privacy for a long time. She didn't want to talk to anybody about it. And I kind of really don't blame her, but I don't know if you can see this picture of her. But um, this is a picture of um, the actual Roe v. Wade baby, uh, Shelly Lynn Thornton. Um, I guess she's got vineyards or something in the background. I'm not really sure. But we're going to find out a little bit about her. All right. So uh, Norma McCorvey, the plaintiff in Roe v. Wade, Never had the abortion she was seeking. She gave her baby up for adoption. And then now that baby is not just an adult. She's 51. Um, after decades of keeping her identity a secret, Jane Rose Child was chosen to talk about her life. Um, has chosen to talk about her life. 
she didn't she kept her privacy and uh and as you'll see she didn't even know any she didn't know anything about roe v wade until uh she was an adult um Nearly a half century ago, Roe v. Wade secured a woman's legal right to obtain an abortion. Uh, of course, you know, that's, you know, kind of, uh, I'm going to add in there that you could get an abortion, but you had limits to uh, when you could get that abortion. You could get an abortion in Texas before 15 weeks. So if you found out soon enough, uh, almost all 50 states allowed it. But before that, and, you know, up until the, the, the 1950s, the abortion laws were very strong and, uh, and a part of our state laws and not a part of the Constitution, but it was prohibited for the most part, um, uh, at least in the, the first 15 weeks. Uh, the ruling has been contested with ever-increasing intensity, intensity, dividing and reshaping American politics. And yet, for all its prominence, the person most profoundly connected to it has remained unknown, the child whose conception occasioned the lawsuit. Uh, Rose Sudam... No, you're just going to... I'm going to kill this word. Pseudonymous... Pseudonymous? Well, pseudonym. Plaintiff Jane Rowe was a Dallas waitress named Norma McCorvey. Wishing to terminate her pregnancy, she filed suit in March of 1970 against the Dallas County District Attorney Henry Wade, challenging the Texas laws that prohibit abortion. Norma won her case, but she never had the abortion. On January 22, 1973, when the Supreme Court finally handed down its decision, she had long since given birth and relinquished her child for adoption. The court's decision alluded only obliquely alluded only obliquely to the existence of Norma's baby. In his majority opinion, Justice Harry Blackman noted that a quote pregnancy will come to term before the usual appellate process is complete. End quote. The pro-life community saw the unborn unknown child as the living incarnation of its argument against abortion. It came, they came to refer to the child as the Roe baby. And I, I will add that, you know, we talked about this in the previous segments, um, that uh, one of the big arguments was there's no standing. She's not pregnant anymore. This case, no one has standing to bring a case that she's entitled to an abortion because she's already had the baby. So, and, and she's far past any uh, of the the arguments they even had in Roe that it would it'd be her choice because they divided in row they made this uh, they divided the 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 argument about when abortion should be a woman's decision into trimesters so the first trimester was always the woman's decision the second trimester was a decision to be made for um, you know whether or not uh, it was uh, in the child's best interest or the woman's best interest in the third trimester, it was whether or not it was um, it would uh, endanger the child. And so um, when they broke it down, there was no longer any argument about it. She already had the baby. And then we also know in our previous documents that Norma McCorvey was not even invited to take part in the, I guess, celebration they had in winning this, you know, landmark case. They really, the attorneys and the, the movement really didn't want to have anything to do with her because... She was a waitress that kept getting pregnant that had been in reform school that didn't 
look good to them. And so um, in interviews with her, she said that she didn't even know that it had been overturned until she turned the TV on. So it's kind of a sad, uh, you know, um, uh, I guess, portrait of our politics in our media that they really were just using this woman and her baby, too, for that matter. Of course, um, the child had a real name, too. And as discovered, um, the child's name and the child's identity had been known to just one person, an attorney named Henry McCluskey. McCluskey had introduced Norma to the attorney who initially filed the Roe lawsuit and who had been seeking a plaintiff. So they were just plaintiff searching. He had then handled the adoption for Norma's child. But several months after Roe was decided, in a tragically unrelated, in a tragedy unrelated to the case, McCluskey was murdered. <laughs> so this is just tragedy all the way around. Um, nor, so he was the only one that knew, and then he was murdered. Uh, Norma's personal life was complex. She had casual affairs with men, one brief marriage at 18. She bore three children, each of them placed for adoption. But she slept far more often with women and worked in lesbian bars. Months after filing Roe, Norma met a woman named Connie Gonzalez, almost 17 years her senior, a mother figure, and moved into her home with her. The women painted and cleaned apartments in a pair of buildings in South Dallas. A decade later, in 1981, Norma briefly volunteered for the National Organization for Women in Dallas. Thereafter, slowly, she became an activist, working at first with pro-choice groups, and then, after becoming a born-again Christian in 1995, with pro-life groups. Being born-again did not give her peace. Pro-life leaders demanded that she publicly renounce her homosexuality, which she did at great personal cost. Norma could be salty and fun, but she was self, also self-absorbed and dishonest. And she remained so <laughs> until her death in 2017 at the age of 69, fundamentally unhappy. Uh, Norma was ambivalent about abortion. She didn't care. She no more absolutely opposed Roe than had ever absolutely supported it. She believed abortion to be legal for precisely three months after conception. So she had made up her own mind, pretty much almost like the legislature had. Um, a position she stated publicly after both she, after the Roe decision and her religious awakening. She was ambivalent about adoption too. Playgrounds were a source of distress. Empty, they reminded Norma of Roe. Full, they reminded her of the children that she had to let go. Norma knew her first child, Melissa. At Norma's urging, her mother, Mary, had adopted the girl, though Norma later claimed that Mary had kidnapped her and forced her to sign the papers against her wishes, telling her that they were just insurance papers. Her second child, Jennifer, had been adopted by a couple in Dallas. The third child was the one whose conception led to Roe. Um, having never been given the matter much thought that the plaintiff who had won the legal right to have an abortion had in fact had one, but as Justice uh, Blackman noted, the length of the legal process had made that impossible. Um, in early 2010, uh, that Roe had not had an abortion uh, brought people to wonder whether the child, who would then be an adult of almost 40, 
was aware of his or her uh, background. Roe might be a heavy load to carry. Um, and I wonder, too, if she or he or she might wish to speak about it. Um, so, anyway, over the coming decade, uh, uh, my interest, as well as many reporters, uh, would spread from one child to Norma Corey's other children, and from them to Norma herself, and to Roe v. Wade, and to the larger battle over abortion in America. The battle is today at its most fierce. Individual states have been radically restricted, have radically restricted the right to have an abortion, a new law in Texas bans abortion after about six weeks and puts enforcement in the hands of private citizens. The Supreme Court, with a 6-3 conservative majority, is scheduled to take up the question of abortion in its upcoming term and would it should well overturn Roe. And we already know that the opinion's been leaked, the one that's written by Justice Alito, and it is going to overturn it. And what we are going to read about shows that it is very well um, uh, uh, it, it's well reasoned and well written. And Roe was just a legal gymnastics to get to a means and really didn't support, uh, wasn't supported by the Constitution or, or the law. <clears throat> now, that doesn't mean that um, abortion should be outlawed. That means that each state will have the authority to make, through their legislature, the, 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 um, the law that they want to uphold on whether a state should be pro choice or pro life based on its abortion laws. Texas is very much so pro-life, and um, with banning abortions after six weeks, uh, that uh, is, is highly supported by that. And it's, uh, it's, a popular, uh, it's a popular law in Texas as well. So I think the Texas citizens have, have spoken you know, loudly with our own legislation. So anyway... Um, uh, Norma's longtime partner, uh, Connie, uh, stood by Norma through decades of infidelity, combustibility, abandonment, and neglect. So this is her 17-year senior, um, you know, uh, lesbian lover. In 2009, five years after Connie had a stroke, Norma left her. I visited, uh, well, I didn't visit, but the person that was writing this article said she visited Connie the following year, then returned a second time. Uh, Connie um, had alerted her to the existence of a jumbled mass of papers that Norma had left behind in their garage and that were about to be thrown out. Norma no longer wanted them. Uh, so this particular reporter at Politico bought the papers from Norma, and they are now in the library of Harvard. Uh, Norma had told her own story in two autobiographies, but she was an unreliable narrator because she lied so much. The papers helped establish the true details of her life, though, and found in them were a reference to the place and date of the birth of Roe Baby, as well as to her gender. Uh, tracing leads, it was found that um, in, uh, it, this is how they were able to locate the actual Roe Baby in 2011. Her name had not been publicly known until 2011, and it was Shelley Lynn Thornton. Um, this reporter did not call Shelley. In the event that she didn't already know that Norma McCorvey Corvey was her birth mother, mother, a phone call could have upended her life. Instead, um, the adoptive mother, Ruth, was called, who said the family had learned about Norma. Uh, 
she confirmed that the adoption had been arranged by the murdered attorney McCluskey. She said that Shelley would be in touch if she wished to talk. Um, until such day, and, and I know also that Shelley had learned by reporters back in 1989 when she was 19 that she did already know that she was the Roe baby when she turned 19, but she didn't know before that. Um, so uh, until that day, um, this, this reporter decided to look for her half-sisters, Melissa and Jennifer. Uh, she found and met with them in November of 2012, and um, she said she, uh, that they had told uh, Ruth but this is kind of giving this person a say they've done more than they have because they'd already known about it. Uh, Shelly then called to say that she too wished to meet and talk. Uh, so Shelly, the Roe baby, now wants to talk. She especially welcomed the prospect of coming together with her half-sisters at the age of 40. Um, she told me that the next month when um, she met them for the first time on a rainy day in Tucson. Uh, now, her sisters were born in... Uh, 1964 and 1968. So they are still, um, I want to say they're probably in their 60s now, but all the girls are close in age, 64, 68, and 70. They were born within the time span of what a normal family, if she hadn't put them up for adoption, would have been. Um, so anyway, she met them for the first time in Arizona, and she um, said she wanted to unburden her secret, which is still, you know, this is poetic license because we already know that she knew. Um, and she probably had met them long before. Uh, secrets and lies alike are the two worst things in the whole. She said uh, she said she had been keeping the secret from the public and she didn't like it. Um, anyway, uh, it, this goes on to say that Ruth had grown up in a devoutly Lutheran home. She was born June 2nd, 1970. Um, that uh, she was, uh, well, I need to go back just a little bit to kind of give some context to this. Um Henry McClusty turned to the couple raising um, her second child. Uh, they had already adopted one child. Uh, they decided they wanted to adopt another. The girl was born in Dallas Osteopathic Hospital on June 2nd, 1970. Uh, they did not join either of her older sisters. Uh, I don't know what that means. Uh, she became instead with the help of the McCluskey, the only child of a woman in Dallas named Ruth Schmid and her eventual husband, Billy Thornton. So this is, uh, this is kind of weird because, uh, they're talking about this woman having, this being their second child. And they says their first. So that's confusing. Um, Ruth named the baby Shelly Lynn. And so this, uh, Billy, I guess not Billy Bob Thornton, but Billy Thornton and Ruth Schmidt, um, apparently stayed together and we're still together. And so we're happy home for this child. Um, Ruth had grown up in a devoutly Lutheran home in Minnesota, one of nine children in 1960, the age of 17. She married a military man from hometown and the couple moved to the Air Force both in Texas. That same year, um, uh, Ruth learned she couldn't conceive. Ruth met Billy, the brother of another wife on the base. Billy Thornton uh, was a lapsed bathless from a small town in Texas, tall and slim with tall black hair, with tall black hair as he put it, a deadbeat, thin, narrow mustache that helped him buy alcohol since he was 15. Uh, Billy had fathered six children with four women. Ruth and Billy ran off, settled in the Dallas area. So I guess he, uh, Ruth had a lot of uh, uh, step-siblings. Um, years later, Billy's brother adopted a baby girl. Ruth decided she wanted to adopt a girl too. 
that's when they adopted um, uh, Shelley. And um, without getting into what appears to me to be a really long, drawn-out, sort of boring life about Shelley, it says um, when she was 15, she noticed that her hands sometimes shook. She could uh, make uh, she could make them still by eating, but the tremor would return. She uh, shook when she felt anxious. She anxious. She felt anxious about everything. And um, so, uh, anyway, it says she graduated from, in 1988, um, from Highland High, enrolled in secretarial school. One month, uh, a year later, her birth mother started to look for her. So Norma actually started to try to find her. In 1989, Norma McCorvey attended an abortion rights march in Washington, D.C. She had revealed her identity as Jane Roe after the Roe decision in, 90, in 1973, uh, but almost a decade had lapsed. Um, let's see. Norma announced she was hoping to find her third child in a television interview. The Today host, Jane Polly, and Norma uh, asked Norma why she decided. Norma struggled to answer. answer. Uh, Gloria Allred was her attorney. Allred interjected the decision was about choice. Uh, but for Norma, it was already directly connected to the publicity, and Norma was being paid for a lot of these publicity stunts. So it's kind of hard to say. It looks like she might have been um, doing this for the money. And here is a picture of Gloria Allred and Jane Rowe in 1949, um, where they are uh, do, uh, doing the television circuit looking for her, uh, uh, it's, uh, I guess, her baby. So Gloria Allred's always about the money, but that's uh, Jane Rowe in 1989. Uh, supposedly looking for her daughter. Um, let's see. It goes on to say that um, Norma went public with her hope to find her daughter. Um, they apparently couldn't find her, but I know that from reading another article that this girl knew in 1989 that she uh, that she found out that she was a road baby. Um, this says uh, Shelley must. She found out uh, she. Uh, somebody named Hampt had traced Shelley's path to Washington State. Uh, this is after she was an adult, uh, when she was 19. Um, but this was the Roe baby, so she flew to Seattle, responded to the present, uh, present herself. She was waiting in a ruby in the parking lot. Um, I guess they met at a Starbucks. I didn't even know they had them back there, but a coffee place. Uh, Shelley and Ruth uh, drove to the, the Seattle Space Needle, and it was kind of a publicity stunt. And when they, she found out about that, they left. And apparently she knew then that she was the Roe baby, but they kept it really quiet for until 2012. All right. So anyway, that's what went on with that. This woman did not know. She didn't want to know. She didn't think that Norma McCarvey had a right to meet her. She never met Norma McCarvey. And um, so that kind of leads us back to what's more important here, which is the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization uh, brief, and I think where we left off last week was sort of the um, the uh, they were he was uh, Justice Alito, in his opinion, was going through um, some of the the issues that were the core of the Mississippi case, and I want to start there because I thought they were so uh, on point and so important for people to to hear the medical advances that have taken place since Roe and some of the things that they had to uh, tangle with when they were looking at the decision, not just the constitutionality and, and how it was decided in the legal gymnastics that were um, made in 1970 
72 to 73 when Roe came out, but what they were looking at now. And so I'm going to start with page six of the Dobbs, Dobbs opinion written by Judge Alito that's in the draft that was leaked. Um, the law at issue in this particular case is Mississippi's Gestational Age Act, and it contains the central provision that, quote, except in a medical emergency or in the case of severe fetal abnormality, a person shall not intentionally or knowingly perform or induce an abortion of an unborn human being if the probable gestational age of the unborn human being has been determined to be greater than 15 weeks. And so the Mississippi law uh, goes a little bit further in not just saying you can't do this, but they're defining um, that uh, that the uh, you can't have an abortion uh, for an unborn human being, and they're calling it a human being, um, after 15 weeks. To support this act, the legislature made a series of factual findings. It began by noting that at the time of the enactment, only six countries besides the United States permitted non-therapeutic or elective abortion on demand after the 20th week of gestation. Um, so that means most countries don't allow this. The United States is pretty liberal here, um, allowing abortions after the 20th week. Uh, so that's about the uh, four- or five-month period mark, and a lot of people don't even show at that point. So that's still uh, pretty mind-boggling if you think about it all over the world. The um, legislature then found that at five or six weeks gestational age— um, let me see if I, I'm not, I don't miss anything— uh, the legislature then found that at five or six weeks, gestational age and, quote, unborn human being's heart begins beating. That's at five or six weeks. That's pretty pretty early on. People don't even know they're pregnant at that point. At eight weeks, the unborn human being begins to move in the womb. At nine weeks, all basic psychological functions are present. At 10 weeks, vital organs begin to function. And hair, fingernails, and toenails begin to form. At 11 weeks, an unborn human being's diaphragm is developing, and he or she may move about freely in the womb. And at 12 weeks, the unborn human being has taken on the human form in all relevant respects. Quoting Gonzalez versus Carhart, a Supreme Court case that they looked at for uh, for the purposes of uh, Roe v. Wade and whether uh, abortion uh, laws were unconstitutional, that was decided in 2007. It found that most abortions after 15 weeks employ dilation and evacuation procedures, which involve the use of a surgical instrument to crush and tear the unborn child. And it concluded that the intentional commitment of such acts for non-therapeutic or elective reasons is a barbaric practice, dangerous for the maternal patient and demeaning to the medical profession. Respondents are an abortion clinic, in this case, Jackson Women's Health Organization and one of its doctors. So now we know that Jackson Women's Health Organization is really just a shell set up not for women's health, but to provide abortions. Um, and that's not to say that they don't also give them checkups, but they're probably, you know, checking them out uh, for the primary pur purpose of uh, 
a woman having an abortion. On the day the Gestational Age Act was enacted, respondents, which is Jackson's Women's Health, uh, filed suit in federal district court against the Mississippi officials, just like they did in Dallas against the actual officials, alleging that the act violated the court's precedence, establishing a constitutional right to an abortion. And again, that's to, just we want to think about this for a minute. If you don't agree with an act, you're actually going to file the elected officials um, as opposed to just filing suit for a declaratory judgment on whether or not the law is constitutional. That's kind of surprising to me, but that's what you do. And that apparently will get you into um, the federal district court and on your way to the Supreme Court. The district court granted summary judgment in favor of the respondents and permanently enjoined enforcement of the act. That means that the district courts determined that the Mississippi Act was un, uh, was by summary judgment as a matter of law unconstitutional, reasoning that the viability marks the earliest point at which the state's interest in fetal life is constitutionally adequate to justify a legislative ban on non-therapeutic abortions and that's really confusing that they're making this up and that 15-week gestational age is prior to viability um and the fifth circuit affirmed this in 2019 and that's just basically men and women um on this district court deciding despite what the facts say that viable uh gestational life occurs after the 15th week even though we have all the what we just went over from the sixth week on we've got heartbeats and vital organs that begin to function in hair and females they're still saying and i think you can even live uh, by the 15th week but i'm not sure about that yet they'll talk about it later here um so the district court decided that that um that viability, uh, in their opinion, was uh, if it was before that point, then a woman could make this decision. So that's just, you know, dumbfounds me that people that aren't doctors um, and having this, uh, these findings of fact would make that decision. Um, this goes on to say that, as a footnote, gestational limits on abortion in the United States compared to international norms show that... Um, the uh, an article is the United States one of seven countries that allow elective abortions after 20 weeks of pregnancy, and that was written in 2017, stating that the claim made by the Mississippi Legislature and the Charlotte Lozier Institute was backed by data, so that they were telling the truth. They just weren't making this up to be pro-lifers. A more recent compilation from the Center of Reproductive Rights indicates that Iceland and Guinea-Bissau are now also similarly permissive. Hmm. So they be, have become liberal, liberal as well. Um, okay, so uh, this goes on to say that the Supreme Court granted certiorari to resolve the question whether, quote, all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. Um, so that was the only question before the court in this case. Are all pre-viability as they have determined as a matter of law, viability is after 15 weeks, prohibitions on elective abortions unconstitutional. Uh, petitioner's primary defense of the Mississippi Gestational Act is that Roe and 
Casey, which was a 2017 case that was also on abortions, were wrongly decided and that the act is constitutional because it satisfies a rational basis review. And that's what I was looking for before. You have a, a uh, different levels of uh, review under the Constitution and uh, rational basis is one of them um, and that would uh, hold muster. Uh, respondents answered the allowing Mississippi uh, answered that allowing Mississippi to ban pre-viability abortions would be no different than overruling Kay and Roe entirely. Um, and they tell us that, quote, no half measures are available. We must either reaffirm or overrule and Roe and Casey. Uh, we begin by considering the critical question whether the Constitution properly understood confers a right to obtain an abortion. Skipping over that question, the controlling opinion in Casey reaffirmed Roe's central holding based solely on the decision of stare decisis. But as we will explain, proper application of stare decisis required an assessment of the strength of the grounds on which Roe was based. We therefore turn to the question that Casey plurality did not consider and readdress that question in three steps. First, we explain the standard that our cases have used in determining whether the 14th Amendment's reference to, quote, liberty protects a particular right. Second, we examine whether the right at issue in this case is rooted in our nation's history and tradition and whether it is an essential component of what we've decided as, quote, ordered liberty. Finally, we consider whether a right to obtain an abortion is supported by other precedents. Constitutional analysis uh, must begin with the language of the instrument of Gibbons versus Ogden in an 1824 Supreme Court vision, which offers a fixed standard for asserting um, what our founding document means. And this goes on to say that um, we overturn uh, Roe versus Wade. And so that's, and then of course, we're gonna have to have now part four, because I didn't get, I have to start with page 10. It's a long opinion, but it's so well written. It's something that we cannot miss and you must listen to. So please tune back in again next week. Um, we will see you on the Legal Connection Show Tuesdays at noon. If you want to listen to this uh, broadcast again, go to um, our website or ourlongstar.com and look up the Legal Connection Show. And remember, the most important thing that you can do this week is to serve God by serving others. And we'll talk to you next week.